great to see everybody. It's a beautiful day, and uh, it's a great day to be at Cross Point for our baptism service. And um, last night we were at a, a baseball game, went to my first Peoria Chiefs baseball game, which was a lot of fun. I have four daughters, and we all lined up. We took up a whole row at the Peoria Chiefs game. And my girls were waiting for the fireworks, and the game went late. And, of course, then it went into extra innings, which is painful. It was cold, and they were cold, and I was cold. And we waited. We tried it. We were like, somebody win this game. We started pulling for the opposing team. <laughs> so we could see fireworks. I got my littlest girl going, what fireworks? I'm like, I don't know. And then it didn't happen. I was like, we got to go. We got church tomorrow. You're, you're preacher's kids, so get over it, you know. <laughs> and then my, uh, but while we were sitting there and uh, waiting for the game, it was a great time. My oldest daughter, Abby, she asked me uh, while we were sitting there kind of watching the game. She said, what's your sermon about tomorrow? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what this sermon is about. I studied the passage. I did all. I wrote out this thing called a sermon, but it didn't pass the three-second rule. You're supposed to be able to explain a sermon in three seconds if you're pushed to, and I had no idea what the sermon was about. So I went to bed stressed out, praying in the Holy Spirit, and I started thinking about it, and I thought, what are we talking about today? And thankfully... God led me. What we're talking about today is the experience of being a Christian. The experience of becoming and being a Christian. The feeling, what it feels like to be a Christian. What it feels like to become a Christian. That's what we're talking about. Last week we looked at the book of Acts and we looked at the healing of this lame beggar that sat at the beautiful gate. And Peter said to him, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And miraculously, this guy gets up and starts walking. And what we said last week is that that guy looks like what it becomes to become a Christian. Just like he got up and started walking, becoming a Christian is spiritually getting up and walking with God in the name of Jesus. So we know what it looks like. To become a Christian, it looks like walking with God, whereas before, we couldn't walk with God. But this week, we're going to talk about not what it looks like, but what it feels like to become and be a Christian. And in order to do that, we're going to set it up in Acts chapter 3. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. And uh, Peter is going to preach a sermon based on this guy's healing. And let me read the first verse to you to set up the context that will then set up a sermon where we're describing what the experience of becoming and being a Christian is like. Acts chapter 3 and verse 11. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, that is the healed lame beggar, he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. 
So what's happened is, is this guy is clinging to Peter. He's jumping up and down. He's praising God. And all these people are coming together because they hear that a miracle is happening. This miracle is happening. They're all coming around to see what this miracle is. And this is what I call event evangelism. Event evangelism. In fact, Jesus was really good at event evangelism. Event evangelism is when you do a miracle to get a crowd. The crowd comes and then you preach the message of the kingdom of God. Jesus did this all the time, famously in Luke 5, also in John 5. The miracle would happen, and then the message. So it's the miracle message technique. And Peter's going to take full advantage of, of, of telling these people what this miracle means. Now, what I want to do is break up this one sermon, and he's about to preach his second sermon. The first sermon's in Acts chapter 2. This is the second sermon in the history of the Christian church subsequent to the Holy Spirit coming. And so in this second sermon, I want to break it up into two parts. The first part, I want to call Peter's men of Israel speech. And the second part, I want to call Peter's brother speech. And in these two speeches that make up one sermon, we get the experience of being a Christian. So first, let's look at Peter's men of Israel speech. All right? And let me, let me read that to you, starting in verse 12. Said, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people and he said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, in this first speech, Peter's men of Israel speech, we see that Peter is bringing home conviction. The word conviction means to cut, to cut. And you can tell he's bringing a, a cutting message, a message that's going to that's gonna convict people, that's going to cut people. And you can see in particular in verses 13, 14, and 15, four times he says you. Everybody say you, you. you. When I was in seminary, one of the rules of preaching that you're taught is you never address an audience by saying you. Because then everybody goes, who does he think he is, that little dude saying you? And so you're always supposed to say, we have sinned. We have fallen. I have too, you know. That way it feels better to you, you know what I mean? Because I haven't sinned, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but Peter breaks the seminary code and he says you four times he says you have rejected you have denied you have killed you have done this and the whole reason why this man is walking is because the very one you killed a mere 50 to 60 days before this event the very man Jesus of Nazareth even though you killed him he's come back to life he's alive 
And he's proven that he's alive because it's by faith in his name that has made this man walk. And as you see this man walking, whom you've always known, who's always been here for 40 years, he's been hanging out at this gate begging. And you guys have all been giving him money. And now he's walking and he's on the inside of the temple. Ah, that proves that the very one you killed is alive. You in big trouble. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. And not only does he say you four times, but then he gives four names that he ascribes to Jesus to highlight how great Jesus is. As if, as if they have killed the ultimate best reality in the universe. Let me look at these names. Did you hear him? He gives four names. This passage in the New Testament happens to be one of the greatest passages on Christology that you will ever find. Christology being the study of Christ, who is Jesus. Peter gives us four names to tell us who this Jesus is. We don't have to be confused on that point. Number one, he says that Jesus is the servant of God. He said that in verse 13. He's the servant of God. And every Jewish person knew the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah said that God would send his servant... A servant Messiah who would come, who would bear the iniquities of us all, who would carry the transgressions of human beings. It would be the servant of God. Jesus didn't come to serve us, and and we don't exist to serve Jesus. Jesus exists to serve the Father's purpose. The Father's purpose is that atonement through substitutionary sacrifice would be provided And this is God's servant. This is the one that God has sent. Jesus. God sent Jesus. And they killed the very man that God had sent. You are in big trouble, Peter saying. Because you have killed God's servant. The second name that Peter ascribes to Jesus is the Holy One. He's not only the servant of God. He's the Holy One. In the Bible, only two men were called Holy Ones. One of them was Aaron. First priest, Moses' brother. The other guy was Elisha, who was like this awesome prophet. I mean, amazing, anointed man of God, holy one. The only other person who's called the holy one in the Bible is God himself. And the word holy means uniquely related to God, uniquely separated for God's purposes, uniquely related to God. In fact, when we become Christians, we, become, we, we are called saints in Christ. And we're not called saints because we're so holy, but because Jesus makes us holy. So did you know that Christians are called holy because we are uniquely related to God by faith in the name of Jesus Christ? You are saints if you believe in Jesus. But ultimately, what I see in this Holy One title for Jesus is that Jesus is uniquely related to God because he's the Son of God. And, and therefore, I wrote out in the margins of my study Bible, I put a big line by that holy one. And I put out there, Jesus is God in the flesh. We believe, based on John 1, that everything that God is, Jesus is. Or Jesus is everything that God is. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the very personification of who God is in the flesh. Imagine that. You know what, you know what Peter's saying? He's saying, you guys have killed God. You've rejected God. That's what this man healed means. It means that he's walking and the very one you killed is God. He's the holy one, the servant of God. Thirdly, he says that Jesus is the righteous one. 
Righteousness in the Bible refers to a relationship with the moral law of God. Righteousness is related to fulfilling in virtue the law of God, but not only outwardly, but inwardly. It means perfect intentions and motives in the heart, and then a perfect conformity to the law of God on the outside. That's what it means to be righteous. And and, and Jesus is the righteous one because he is fully human. I wrote out a big line in my study Bible. I wrote out a line from righteous one, and I went, he is fully human. In fact, Jesus was more human than you and I ever could be because Jesus was perfect. The only perfect human being after and subsequent to the fall of Adam and Eve is Jesus Christ. In fact, he came to fulfill the law of God for us. He came to be our righteousness. He came to be the one who would be the new representative for human beings. When you and I were born into this world, we were born identified with the first Adam, Adam and Eve. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And by being related to them, we were related to their failure. We were related to them in every possible way. In fact, we have recapitulated their original sin over and over again because we are united by birth into the first Adam. But the New Testament says that Jesus is the second Adam. And when we believe in Jesus, we are transferring our membership from that bad country club that is Adam and Eve to the ultimate church and community of God, which is Jesus, who is our new representative, if you believe in Jesus. Because he's the righteous one. He is my righteousness. I cannot be righteous enough to make it to heaven. I cannot be righteous enough to make it to God. I have to believe in the righteous one to be righteous before God. And Peter is saying that the only guy, the only human being that actually got it right for God and with his law is Jesus. And you religious people, everybody say religious. All religion killed Jesus. Because religion always says that you can do it. Religion always says that it's up to you. Religion says that you can get a checkup from the neck up and actually fulfill the law of God. And it's impossible. Because even if we were to fulfill the law of God outwardly and be perfect and great neighbors and happy and moral. And everybody said, oh, they never do anything wrong. Yet inwardly we would be so corrupt. Our mouths are an open grave. Only one can be righteous and that's Jesus. But the final title that Peter gives is he calls Jesus the author of life. What a paradox. The Bible says that all things were created through Jesus, Colossians chapter 1. The Bible says that Jesus, in the New Testament, the Bible says Jesus was there in Genesis 1. That Jesus was the very agency that God spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. Jesus was the word that created that life. He was the author of life. And what did human beings do? They took the author of life, the very one who gave life, and they took his life from him. They crucified him. That's the irony. That is the ultimate paradox of this very moment. You killed him. You denied him. You rejected him. God came to you. God walked to you with feet and hands, flesh and blood. He came to you. He came and wept with you. He came and slept in your boat. He came and walked on your water. He came and lived in your poverty. He came and experienced your rejection. God came to you and what did you do? You killed him. You rejected him. You see what Peter's saying? Peter's saying, you didn't reject and kill a good teacher. 
This is not just some kind of religious guru that died a martyr's death. This is not some kind of special prophet at the end of a long line of prophets that was just kind of a man of God. This was not just a good moral guy that you killed. You killed God. You rejected God. That's what Peter is saying. Men of Israel, don't you see that you've killed him? It's as if, you know, it's, it's a, how many of y'all have whiteboards at home? I love whiteboards. I have whiteboards everywhere. In my office, I got big whiteboards. At home, I got big whiteboards. I love writing things on whiteboards. It's as if Peter is writing on a big whiteboard the name Jesus of Nazareth. And then he's taking a big red sharpie that, is, that you can't erase. And he's underlining that name four times. Boom, servant of God. Boom, the holy one. Boom, the righteous one. Boom, the author of life. He's saying, you, you killed him. I would call that a message of conviction, wouldn't you? Peter's really elbowing his way into their life. And he's convicting them. And you want to know what it feels like to become a Christian? The first thing that happens to us is we get convicted. And you know what we get convicted of? That we've turned our back on God. That we don't take God seriously. It's as if you built a beautiful house, a beautiful mansion, and you invited homeless people to live in this home that they've never had. And, and, and in building this home, you came up with a, a set of rules, and, and those rules emphasize the importance of relationship and honoring. The first set of rules is that you want to be respected and honored as the builder of the house. The second set of rules is that you want to respect and love the people that you're living with as yourself. And what would happen if you did that for people and then they cursed you and they rejected you and they turned their back on you and they said nasty things or they ignored you altogether? And then what would happen if you began to treat people badly and say, that room is mine and that room is mine and mine, mine, mine. Every parent knows that. And when we walk outside and we look up at that sky, that sky doesn't belong to us. That's a sky that God built. And when we look at the trees and the rivers and the line on the horizon that defines what a sunrise is and what a sunset is, that's not our decorations. That is divine design that God created. And the body that you and I have, this temple, this tent by which God was meant to live and dwell and have his being, this, this temple by which we were to employ the very spirit of God. And in this temple... Where our soul and spirit is. And in this world that God has built. You know what we've done? We've rejected God. We've ignored him. We've said he's not important. We've said that we could do our life on our own. And God said I will send my son to die. On behalf of their sin of rejecting me. And treating each other badly. And so Peter could have come here today. Couldn't he? And he could have said. You killed him. You denied him. You rejected God. You cannot become a Christian 
until you have a moment when God begins to convict and cut. And God doesn't bring a dagger to kill us, to cut us. He brings a surgical knife to begin to do surgery to heal us. But the healing cannot happen without the cutting of conviction. And when Peter preached a similar idea in Acts chapter 2, almost the same idea exactly, they said the crowd, it said that the crowd was cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what must we do to be saved? How can we restore this horrible thing that we have done? That's what it feels like to become a Christian. You come to a moment and you say, I don't know. I, I want to please God, but I haven't. I, I, I want to do what's right. I, and that moment when you start feeling conviction, man, that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. That's, that's the beginning. That's the very moment of weakness that will lead ultimately to your salvation. Listen, the whole reason why the Holy Spirit comes is to bring conviction. Listen to this passage that Jesus gave about the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of our rebellion, of basically rejecting God, of human failure. Luke 16 or pardon me, John 16, he says this about the Holy Spirit, verses 7 and following. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict. Literally, that could be, he will cut the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see that? How, how does the Holy Spirit help us based on this passage? How does the Holy Spirit help us? The Holy Spirit helps us by convicting us of our own rejection of God. You know, some people think the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. I've heard people say that. Well, the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. Well, no, I don't think so. I don't think he is. A, I, think, I think he's an elbower. I think he, I think he gets in our business, man. I think he, he kind of goes, oh, you think you're all right. Boom, he kind of ribs us. You know what I'm saying? That's the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's what it's like. That's what it feels like to become a Christian. But, beloved, that's what it's like to be a Christian. Don't you know that even after we become Christians, the Holy Spirit's there to convict us. And he's cutting us. And that's why we walk around and we go, oh, whoa, that doesn't feel good. You know, the difference between my life before Jesus and after Jesus is that before Jesus, when I sinned, I didn't care. After I became a Christian, it wasn't like I became perfect and started floating around everywhere. Amen. I still jack up every now and then. I still mess up. I know you're disappointed about that because I'm a pastor, but there it is. You don't have to come back. I'm just saying. But, but my life, the difference is, is that when I do sin against God, I feel it. I don't like it. I'm convicted. And I, I would invite you, my brothers and sisters, if, you're, if you are a Christian, man, embrace that conviction. That is, that is a surgical operation that the great physician is doing in your life to bring about change and healing is when you begin to embrace conviction. But you know what American Christianity is? It's a bunch of fluff without conviction, isn't it? It's, it's all like, well, you're going to get better if you just think that you're okay. Dude, you're not okay, and neither am I. Amen. That's the beginning of healing. This is a church. This our Cross Point Church is a 
is a church of sinners asking God to bring conviction to their lives. And the moment we take away conviction from our faith is the moment we cannot grow in Christ or experience his freedom. Peter is loving these people. He's not hating them. He's not pushing them down. He's offering them a hand to get up. He's not hating on them, man. He is loving them by saying, I want to help you. And I want you to understand fully that your sin against God, it's worse than you thought. Like, this, you thought it was bad. It's worse than you thought. You've rejected God. Now, at this point in time, Peter, he could have been done at this. He has served his purpose. He, he has served the very purpose for which he came to preach. And the reason why he came to preach is to tell these people how this guy who was crippled suddenly gets up and starts walking. And so he could have said right here at this moment, he could have said, you killed the author of life. He's alive. This guy's walking. Goodbye. I'm out. And he could have walked right out of there. And they would have been like, <gasps> like dying of conviction, right? But what he does is he brings around a second speech. In the second speech, he brings comfort. I call this Peter's brother's speech. Now watch the comfort. See, after we're convicted, we need comfort. And usually we need comfort pretty quick, amen? (laughs) It hurts when God starts cutting and like, God, please, give me love or something. And here he comes. Watch this in verse 17. Now watch. He says, and now, brothers... That auto, he's automatically changing his tone. He went from men of Israel. Men of Israel, you have really jacked it up. Now he's going, brothers. And one of the reasons why he's calling them brothers is because he himself has denied Jesus. Don't you remember? Jesus, Peter denied Jesus three times, as I recall. So he should identify with him and go, I am your brother in this conviction. I've been there. I know. I know what it feels like to have sorrow about rejecting God. Brothers. And then he says, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Jewish people always believed, based on Levitical and Mosaic law, that there was always the opportunity for atonement for sins of ignorance. That there was a sacrifice available for sins of ignorance. And, of course, we remember Jesus when he died on the cross. Jesus, as they were pounding those nails into him, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And we know about, based on the Greek text, we know that he kept saying that. He said that over and over and over again. So every time, boom, they're nailing those nails. Boom, into his hands. Boom, man. I mean, can you imagine how, how bad that hurt? Boom. And every time he felt the pain of that nail, boom, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Boom, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Boom, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus died for those of us who don't fully realize what we've done. Isn't that good news? That is comforting. I am so happy. I am really happy right now. He says in verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, this was always God's plan. What Satan meant for evil, what men meant for evil, God turns for good. God can turn anything into a tapestry that will add up to his glory. 
He predestined before the foundation of the world that Jesus would die. He predestined before the foundation of the world that he would allow these wicked men to kill his son. God fulfilled this. God is always in control of our salvation, even when we're jacking it all up. God is in control. Verse 19, here it is. Gospel application. One of the most concise verses ever. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, here it is. Here's the comforting message. What is the comforting message summed up in one word? The comforting message is repent. That's it. There's your application. Repent. Repent means to turn around and to go in a new direction. In the Old Testament, repent stood for turning away from idols and turning back to the ultimate God. In faith and obedience. That's what repentance means. Repentance is about the ultimate turnaround story. It's like when you watch sports, right? And they talk about some athlete, you know, and they do the special feature on the athlete. And they're like, Bob, this was a great turnaround story. You know what I mean? Like that is what we're offered. We're offered a turnaround opportunity. We're offered a second chance. We're offered the opportunity just to turn away from the very part of us that rejects God and to turn back to God by faith in Jesus' name. And God says, I'll make it all okay from there. You don't have to do anything else. That is amazing. When you really think about it, now think about it. For for this audience, they killed Jesus, man. They said crucify him. A mere 60 days before this. And Peter's saying, all you guys got to do is turn around and face God and you're good. That's comforting, isn't it? Man, that is, that is like, that is like, wow. You want to know what it feels like to experience becoming a Christian? It's when you're going one way and it never works. I mean, it never works without God, man. There's either emptiness of a sharp shooting pain or emptiness of a dull ache. or It never works without God. And we go to all these other things to be our functional Savior. We go to people to be our Savior. We go to money to be our Savior. We go to popular culture to be our Savior. We go to all this stuff. And all God's saying is all you got to do is just turn around. And you will be saved. In fact, three promises are offered to all who repent and believe in the name of Jesus. Again, outlining a deep, rich human experience in redemption and salvation. In atonement, atonement. He says, repent and turn back, number one, that your sins may be blotted out, which is a picture, really a metaphor for forgiveness of our sins. That word blotted out, in some of your translations, it might read wiped out, wiped out. That was a verb that was described for uh, a writing process because they didn't, have a, they didn't have paper back then to write down things on, right? Amen. And so what they had to do is reuse, reuse papyrus and other materials, sometimes stone. And what they would do is reuse those things. So they might write something down, 
and use it for a purpose. But when they're done with that purpose, and they would take water and wipe out the writing on there so that they could write something new on that document. You see what I'm saying? Y'all tracking with me? Now, what a great picture because what happens is before we repent, we have all this writing in our life. You could imagine a kind of a spiritual tattooed life on steroids type deal. And we got all this writing on us, and all of the writing in the book of our life is about rejecting God and running from God and other people rejecting God and hurting us. And there's all this writing and identity issues that are going on. And what's promised to us is that when we repent and turn back and believe in the name of Jesus, all of that gets wiped out like water is splashed on it, and we're cleansed and forgiven. And then God begins to write a new story. God begins to write a new story. And anyone who's in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Even today, we're going to write a story today. And we're going to show you symbolically what we mean by forgiveness of sins with this baptism. And those who are being baptized today, they're going to get in this water. And and they're going to go down and come back up. And it's symbolic. It's an outward sign of an inward reality that by believing in Jesus, they have been wiped clean. Now, now you got to understand, it's just a picture. It doesn't This doesn't save them. They're saved by faith in the name of Jesus. But this pictures for all of us what it means to repent, turn back, and get cleansed by God. So there's a promise for our past life. Our past can be blotted out, wiped out clean. You don't have to be good enough to come to God. Just repent and let him clean you. Let him fix you. Some people think that they can't come to God unless they get their life together. How many of y'all know somebody like that? Like, well, I don't want to go to church till I get my stuff, you know, in order. I got some junk. Dude, that's exactly when you should come. We, you know, it's not like Jesus, like, knocking on the door and we shouldn't open up to him until we get everything cleaned up. We open to him because things can't get cleaned up without him coming in and cleaning house. We need Jesus to come in and, and be the house cleaner. We need him to make us clean. And that's what's promised. What a, great, what a great promise. If you repent and believe in the name of Jesus, God will cleanse you and, 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 and will forgive you of your past sins. But here's the second promise. I call it a promise for our present life, like presently. He says in verse 20, Repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Number two, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, some scholars rightly think that perhaps that that's referring to a millennial reign of Jesus. A millennial reign that Jewish people had always said would be a time of refreshing for the nation of Israel. And certainly we could go down there and there's some nuance to that phrase. But what we believe as Christians certainly is that there's an already not yet aspect to the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. That you can experience a foretaste of the coming kingdom of Jesus right now in your present life. That time of refreshment, it stands for a cool breeze on a hot day. It's like it's really hot and you're sweating like I'm sweating right now. Are y'all sweating? I'm sweating. I can't wait to get in that water. I'm like, is it cold? Hallelujah. Praise God. Woo, I'm sweating. 
You know what I mean? But sometimes like in the middle of summer, right, and you're outside and there's no wind, and then suddenly there's like a rush of wind, a cool breeze, and you feel it and you're like, oh, that is, that is wonderful, wonderful. And you know what? I believe that everybody who repents and believes in the name of Jesus will experience a peace that passes all understanding. Many of the testimonies that we're going to hear today, they didn't have peace. They were anxious. They were worried. But then when they believed, a peace came across them. Now, I'm not saying that peace is perfect all the time. And as believers, sometimes we go through valley. But I believe that that first moment is a refreshing wind. But as Christians, there's an experience. And the experience is, is that there's renewal dynamics available to all of us believers. Because sometimes we go through a dry period in our spiritual life. Sometimes we go through spiritual burnout or depression. And do you know we have right here a renewal dynamic process, which is when you're spiritually burned out and you need to be refreshed in your faith, and you're wondering, why isn't it like it was when I first believed? Why, why can't I be refreshed like, and have that moment? Do you know that sometimes you need to stop and evaluate your life? And look at attitudes and actions and begin to repent of those things. And I believe that sometimes we have moments of revival and renewal in our lives as followers of Jesus when we're repenting. You know, the Christian life is not a recreational activity. It's a, it's a lifestyle of repentance. And as we repent, and as we turn away from those things that are where we're rejecting God and turn back to God, man, we experience refreshing. And man, we, you know what? Christians in America need revival, don't they? Man, we need revival in our nation. We need revival in our church and in our own life. We need renewal, ongoing renewal. The state of Illinois needs renewal, amen? Those politicians, they need times of refreshment. I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. I try to keep politics out of it. So the second thing is for a present life. First thing, past life is forgiven. Presently, we're promised times of refreshment. Here's the third experience, which I call hope. But ultimately, he says that Jesus will come back for you, verse 20, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for, and here's the phrase, restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I call it restoration. And the promise is this. For all, everybody who believes in Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to come back and restore everything. Heavens and earth, nature, all psychological, sociological, ecological, spiritual issues. Jesus is going to restore all of it. New heavens, new earth, no sorrow, no pain, no sickness, no enemies. Can I get an Amen. And see, some of us as believers, we go through this life and we experience enemies or we experience sickness or we we experience all these things. But you see, when we live in light of this future promise that Jesus is going to make all sad things come untrue and we've all lost somebody that we've loved or we've all been through tragedies and we've all been through life-defining abuse. But don't you know that Jesus will come back and wipe all of that out and make all things new because that's what Jesus will do. He is risen and he's coming back and we must live in light of that future promise. We call that hope. We call it hope. And when you don't have hope, when your whole life comes down to what's going to happen at your job this week, that's a bummer. 
when your life is defined by temporary things, when you can't even see beyond this week, that's a bummer. But man, in Jesus, it's all going to be made new. That is a comforting thought. And the experience of being a Christian is walking in that future assurance and believing without a shadow of a doubt, based on the resurrection, he's going to do all that. He's going to do all of that. That's comforting. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus. Your sins will be forgiven. Times of refreshment will come. And Jesus will restore all things for you. Now let me read the rest of this chapter so we get through this. i got to get through this chapter. I've got to get through this chapter. So you're stuck. Unless you just want to get out and walk out, which would be really rude. <laughs> Verse 22. He begins to quote scripture, and all great sermons are rooted in scriptural thought, biblical thought. At Cross Point, we preach a lot of Bible because that's what Peter and Paul did. And so he starts quoting a lot of scripture. And look at verse 22 where he quotes Deuteronomy 18. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So there's a warning here too. There is no hope. There is no hope for those who reject Jesus. Because Jesus is God's man. Jesus is God's solution for the world. So everybody needs to listen and believe in Jesus. If you don't, then the afterlife is not going to be good. Verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with, with your father, saying to Abraham, and here's Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, that is to Jewish people first, He sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, I love this because what he's saying is is that all the prophets, verse 24, told us about Jesus. So there's no excuse. And you know what? We ask ourselves, why aren't there miracles anymore, man? I want to see some of that church. I want to see, you want to be a biblical church? I want to see some people healed off in this place. And then I'll believe in Jesus. But don't you know you don't need miracles to believe in Jesus? All you need is scripture. Because the prophet said hundreds of years before Jesus came that Jesus would be what he would be. He would do what he would do. And that he would come back and restore all things. All of the prophets, Samuel, Moses, Abraham, all of them talked about Jesus. So we don't need miracles, do we? We have the word of God. And all you have to do is doubt your doubts and open up your heart to scripture, to verses. And this is not a cult. This is not some kind of blind faith. This is not like checking your mind at the door or or some kind of intellectual suicide by believing in Jesus. There's real rational stuff going on there through the prophets. We're not dressing up in black robes and waiting for UFOs around here. We're not putting on purple shoes and waiting for some Martian to kind of insert something in our brain. Dude, we got the prophets who said Jesus will come and you got to listen to him. This is not some obscure idea. This is an idea offered to the nations that God, through the prophets and the apostles, said, believe in him, follow him, repent, and turn back to God by believing in the name of Jesus. We ask ourselves, how? 
And this is Luke's purpose, isn't it? How in the world did Christianity make it? This little obscure Palestinian movement. Jesus didn't travel more than 100 miles from his home. He never, he never wrote a book. How did these fishermen and these uneducated men, how did they spread the gospel so that it would reach us here in our part of the world, in this obscure corner of the world in central Illinois? You want to know why? Because of Scripture. It's all right here. And what Peter and Paul and the rest of Christians have been doing for 2,000 years is opening up this book and saying, don't you see that here is the swaddling cloth by which you find Christ and by which you can believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Is it time for you through conviction and through comfort to repent and turn back to God by believing in Jesus? I hope you will. And if you are a Christian, I hope you'll walk in the experience of conviction and comfort from God. Let's pray. God, how good you are to give us this word, this chapter. (laughs) The lame man being healed, a symbol of our own healing and walking with God. A message and experience of repentance and turning back and believing in the name of Jesus. Give us the simplicity of faith. Holy Spirit, bring good conviction, the kind of conviction that leads to transformation and bring us comfort. Bring us the comfort of gospel forgiveness, of renewal, and ultimately of the restoration of all things. If you don't believe in Jesus, I just want to give you a moment. You might ask yourself, how do I become a Christian And really, the way you become a Christian is you stop and you say to Christ personally, I believe you died for me. Come into my life. You might pray something similar to to this. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm more sinful than I thought. It's worse than I thought. And yet your love is more than I imagined. Your grace, your forgiveness, I believe in it. And I want to receive it by believing that Jesus died for me. And that he defeated death. I want to believe in his name. Jesus come into my life. If you pray something simple like that. Calling on the name of Jesus. You will be saved. And all those promises of forgiveness. Refreshment. Restoration coming. All of that will be yours. By faith alone. In the name of Jesus. I want to be very clear with everybody here today. You're about to see baptisms. These baptisms do not save the people being baptized. But they're telling you a story about what's happened to them spiritually. They're they're showing you outwardly what they've experienced inwardly, which is forgiveness, times of refreshment, and the hope of restoration. I pray it will bless you as believers. I pray that if you're not a believer, you're investigating, that you will feel welcome to believe this message that you will join your faith with ours, your hope with ours, and that you too will become a follower of Jesus in this world. He is good. He is God's servant. He is the Holy One, the Righteous One, the author of life, and the one who forgives us. And we are so grateful to have his love. 
So be blessed as we continue to worship and as we celebrate our great salvation. Amen.